Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the political interview in the U.S. A lot of journalism has been talking this week about Jonathan Swan's sit-down with President Trump as a model of how a political interview should be on television. What's notable is that there's not more like it. So the question is, why aren't we seeing more aggressive, more well-researched interviews of politicians in this country, especially in the moment that we're living through? So I'm really happy to be joined today by Stephen Sacker, who's the host of Hard Talk on the BBC, which, if you haven't seen it, is a long-form 25-minute interview show on the BBC in which he tackles newsmakers and and people who are in the news. To give you a sense of what he's like, here's a clip of a 2016 conversation. They're talking about whether Trump is a Nazi and how Vicente needs to be thinking about his own policies. Here's here's a taste. Like the Nazi party, the Republican Party members of Congress and the Senate, they follow him blindly. They don't question him. You can't. You, they Mr. Fox, I'm going to have to stop you. You can't, you can't bandy around this word Nazi lightly. I mean, we all know what the Nazis were responsible for in the 1930s and 40s. Donald Trump and his supporters in and out of the Republican Party, the many, many millions of him who elected him to office in the United States, you cannot, surely, you cannot label them Nazis. Stephen Sacker, thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure to be with you. So how is, how is your job different under lockdown? What, is it, what does it mean for, how you're, for the stories you're picking or how you're doing your interviews, other than obviously you're doing them remotely? Yes. Well, several things have changed as a result of lockdown and the restrictions that's put upon the BBC's resources as much as anything else. We have lost access to our TV studio. So we've um, lashed up an alternative way of recording the show, um, which has involved our production staff becoming skilled as camera operators in a way they never were before. We've had perhaps, I think, four guests in the flesh since March. Uh, Now, that is a huge problem in some ways because an interview show like mine really thrives on the chemistry of a one-on-one, in-the-flesh, intense exchange. And, of course, you lose some of the intensity when you're using uh, one of the platforms like Skype or Zoom. So in practical terms, it has made real differences to us, but we are still persuading people around the world to come on the show. And I suppose one could argue that because we are now doing it via laptops and smartphones, via Zoom and Skype, Uh, In a funny sort of way, it's easier to get guests to commit to that than to going into a studio or, of course, coming to London to meet me in person. So we continue the show, but uh, it is a little different. Does Does the fact that you're doing it remotely change the way you structure your interviews? Does it change the way that you think about how you're going to extract information? It, it changes the rhythm and the dynamic of the interview, that's for sure. But I should just say that we do remote interviews uh, anyway, fairly sure. routinely, because sure. like most interview shows, we cannot expect all of the, you know, the, the important people, the movers and shakers, uh, the influencers and powerful people in the world to come to London and pass through our studio. So even before lockdown, in the world of normality that we knew before, 
we were doing quite a lot of interviews via satellite links to TV studios around the world. So the remote interview isn't a new concept for us, but certainly we are now reliant on it in a new way. And it is, in my opinion, a a less satisfactory way of doing this sort of one-on-one long-form interview. Uh, Because, uh, as I said, the, the human element, the chemistry that exists in a studio face-to-face is very different um and there's just no getting away from that yeah well i was so glad to have this conversation with you because we're in the middle of of election season and these we're, we're seeing more and more interviews with trump and with biden and and i've and i've long been struck by the differences in interviewing styles between uk and u.s journalists especially on television you were a former Washington correspondent for the BBC. You were there during Lewinsky, right? I was. I was in D.C. from 1997 through 2002. So I got the the high drama years at the tail end of the, the Clinton administration, including, of course, uh, Lewinsky and impeachment. And then I got the even more dramatic moments at the beginning of the Bush administration with 9-11 and everything that came from that. So it was a pretty extraordinary five years. And I did interview two U.S. presidents, one Bill Clinton on location when he made a visit to um, Europe and the other George W. Bush I interviewed inside the White House uh, in 2001, actually before 9-11. It was in the summer of 2001. Mm-hmm. What do you did you see this interview that Jonathan Swan of Axios did with Trump this week? I did. I, I watched the full unexpurgated thirty-five minutes of it, and it was a completely fascinating, compelling, pretty bizarre piece of TV. And I, I have to say, and I, I tweeted afterwards, uh, kudos to Jonathan Swan. I thought he handled it very well. Uh, I think he was well prepared. His tone and his manner were were spot on, I think. And he was in command of the facts that mattered. And it made for an extraordinary encounter. I totally agree with you. Although I'm, I got to say, I'm, uh, you know, I've been also dismayed at, I mean, he got tons of praise for that. And, um, but, but we seem to be grading on a curve here. Like, right. There was, there's a lot of praise for this interview that, you know, not to overly flatter you, but I mean, it, this is the sort of thing you do every single week. It was held up here as like an extraordinary accomplishment. Really, I really do understand what you're saying. And without wishing to sound egotistical, um, I think I, like you, share the surprise that people in the United States, so many viewers of that interview, are sort of overawed and dumbstruck with admiration that Jonathan Swan had clearly prepared, had researched and uh, done a very thorough job of putting together a case to put to the President of the United States. Uh, and it, it, it really does surprise me that that should surprise so many media watchers in America. I mean, that, that is the staple of what I do day in and day out. To me, doing your research, thinking through the interview and uh, retaining the mental agility to not only have the research but but use it in the right way. It, it's the essence of a of a good, challenging interview. Jonathan Swan did it, but but frankly, 
given what is happening to this administration and certainly its handling of coronavirus, it would have been extraordinary had he not <laughs> presented the case and the facts and quizzed the president in the way he did. Uh, it, it, it did. It did strike me that some of the praise came from a place where American journalism too often fails to do the preparation and the research for, for these kinds of interviews. So why is that? I mean, you, you put your finger on, I think, an important point here about preparation um, and research. But why? Let, let's engage in gross generalizations here and stereotypes. Why, why are so often these U.S. Hmm. television interviews so terrible and so sycophantic? Well, I think there are several issues. In my you know, limited experience of America's political culture and covering the White House and, as I say, interviewing a president inside the White House, there has traditionally been a degree of deference to the office of the presidency, which does color the tone uh, and the content of interviews with the president. I, I just think over many years, I've noted that. It's more deference than it's more deference than you see towards the prime minister's office there, just culturally, you think? I think it is. And, and you know, you used an interesting word, or maybe I did. One of us used an in, in, interesting word, overawed. I think, you know, let us, it, it's on the most human sort of instinctual level, it is different going into the White House, you know, and all of the security and the preparation and mm. the... Yeah. the Role that goes with getting into the Oval Office. Actually, I don't think uh, Jonathan Swan's interview was in the Oval Office, but it was in one of those formal rooms uh, near the Oval Office. And, you know, it, it is quite a thing for any journalist to, yeah. to do that. And I'm not saying that wandering into number 10 Downing Street to interview Boris Johnson feels pretty humdrum in comparison, because it's still a big deal. But but the, the sort of furniture, the mental furniture you're you're taking in as you prepare for a an interview with the prime minister in number 10 is not the same as yeah. a presidential interview inside the White House. It, it just isn't. And also yeah. what I would say, and again, this is just my experience and it may be not representative, but when I interviewed George W. Bush all those years ago in the White House, there was much more control. Uh, and interestingly, much more control than I think was exercised over Jonathan Swan. Um, mm. I was told, Stephen, you have just eight minutes and you will not go a minute over. And I'd already had to, in a way that I didn't like, but there was no choice other than refuse the interview, I had to go through not specific questions, but the themes that I was going to touch upon with the president, so that there was that element that the the team around the president had already had a chance to, to figure out how the president might want to respond. Now, that level of control just doesn't happen in British political interviews. And journalists wouldn't stand for it if it was uh, any attempt was made to impose it upon them. Uh, as I say, in the relationship I had with the White House as the BBC correspondent being offered this chance to interview uh, George W. Bush, I wasn't in a position to say, absolutely no way am I going to give you any subject areas that I'm going to touch upon. So, you know, to that extent, there was a transaction that took place that that would not have normally been taking place between myself as a BBC interviewer and, and the subject. Um, so in a funny sort of way, one twist to the whole story of Donald Trump and the way he gets interviewed by the media is that he is such a, 
uh, an instinctual politician, if you can call him a politician, and also so utterly determined to be in control that he won't take, I think, you know, the advice of his own communications team when it comes to limiting interviews to 10 minutes or, you know, making sure that the questions have been vetted beforehand. I think once Jonathan Swan sat down with him, President Trump was just going to talk, you know, for as long as it took. And, and that was something that would never have happened in the Clinton or Bush White Houses. You know, what's extraordinary is that Trump said, I think, today that he thought the interview went well. Well, it, 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 as an outside observer, you may say it's extraordinary, but I don't actually find it that extraordinary if one tries to get inside the head of Donald Trump. Uh, you yeah. know, he it, it all comes back to the nature of the man's ego, uh, the way he sees the world, and the utter conviction he has in his own centrality uh, to every story. So that, you know, the narrative he gives is, as far as he's concerned, the only narrative that really matters. Well, and also his, his frame is, and he said this, I think, today, it, it was good because a lot of people talked about it and a lot of people watched well, it. And, and, and that, you know, let us be realistic here. The man is in the White House. He did win. The 2016 election, maybe not the popular vote, but he, he he won the election. And he, from, you know, from the point of view of, of effective communication, Donald Trump, there is no one like him for getting his message across. Now, you may yeah. hate his message, but he is a brilliant message delivery system. Um, whether it be Twitter or the use of a TV interview or even the, the, the mass rallies that were such a hallmark of his campaign, there yeah. is nobody like him for, for yeah. message delivery. Let me go back and probe this idea a little bit more about, about why the, the U.S. press isn't more aggressive. And you talked about the kind of personal awe that you get when you go into the, to the White House. But surely there's something more structural than that? having to do with access yeah, and, the system. And, the, um, and, the, and the political class. I mean, what, what's, what I never have gotten is that the, you know, surely the political class in the UK is smaller than here, right? If there was a need to sort of belong to that and, and, and keep those connections, it would exist there as well as here, but it, but it's different and it doesn't. And why, why is it so powerful here? Why is yeah, it so powerful? Well, the, the system is uh, powerful in the U.S., and one only has to look at the way the the White House press corps works and the little brass nameplates that are so treasured by the senior White House correspondents in that press room, and then the degree to which uh, it is clear in the Trump administration that interviews are only given to those who are seen in some way or other to be favorable to the president. The interesting story about Jonathan Swan is that, you know, if one looks at his previous encounter with the president and the way he's reported, Donald Trump felt that this was a, a reporter that he could do business with in a way that, yeah. of course, he cannot and will not do business with somebody like Jim Acosta from CNN. So, yeah. you know, journalists are aware of that. Now, some journalists in the United States have taken the view this Trump administration, you know, must be covered 
in terms of truth telling and exposing um, inaccuracy and falsehood where it exists. And, and those journalists are clearly not going to get access to the president. So one of the chicken and egg elements to this whole discussion is that, by and large, Trump is being interviewed by people who, for one reason or another, are seen by the administration as, in some way, quote unquote, friendly. So there's that factor. Uh, yeah. But uh, another interesting sidelight on what you're saying is that actually things are changing a little bit in the UK as well. The, the Boris Johnson government, our current government in the UK, is showing signs of limiting media access to the prime minister, to certain journalists who are seen, you know, not necessarily to be overtly friendly, but not problematic. Uh, yeah. For example, I'm thinking that the Prime Minister hasn't done one single interview, as far as I'm aware, since getting into number 10 with one of our key national news shows, Channel 4 News. We have four main terrestrial TV channels. Channel 4 News, you know, it, it's a significant player in, in the marketplace with a very well-known anchor. And uh, he has not had any interview with Prime Minister Boris Johnson. So... Yeah. That uh, that suggests to me that perhaps there are some people in Number Ten Downing Street who are looking at the way the Trump administration has played the access game with uh, political reporters, and maybe beginning not to use the same playbook, but to take just a few of the plays. Yeah. How come you haven't interviewed Trump? What's been what's the story there? Well. Uh, <laughs> I, I, funnily enough, I did meet Donald Trump many, many years ago, uh, long before the notion of getting into the White House had, had entered his mind. Uh, when I was a cub reporter in my early or mid-twenties, I actually was doing some radio work in New York City and met him and interviewed him for, a, actually bizarrely, a local radio story uh, out of Northern Ireland. <laughs> Uh, so so it isn't entirely accurate to say I've never interviewed him, but I've certainly never interviewed him since he became what he is today. And we at Hard Talk, you know, we have, because we feel we ought to, we've put in a request to the White House, but there is not one hope on God's earth uh, that we've ever harbored that we would get an interview with Donald Trump. The, you know, the format of our show, the reputation of our show it's everything that, you know, the Trump White House would dismiss yeah. utterly and completely out of hand. So, um, you know, it, Tim, is, Tim Sebastian got him in, what was that, 2008 or something? Yeah, but obviously doing Donald Trump as a, as a mogul business operator in New York City boasting about his property deals and his casinos is a very different proposition. Yeah from yeah. Donald Trump, either the wannabe president or the president. So, you know, if you look at the, the kinds of people he was prepared to talk to in that era, you know, the two, early 2000s, mid 2000s, it's, it's very different. Uh, and and uh, to be honest, again, without, I don't want to be unfair to Donald Trump. It would be different for any person who became um, yeah. president of the United States. I mean, I, I interviewed Barack Obama for BBC News just on a street corner outside the Senate, you know, when he was a senator. But that doesn't mean I'm going to get access to him 
uh, when he's president of the United States. The game changes when you are commander in chief. Do you ever fantasize about it? Like when you were watching that um, Serrano, oh, yeah. did you think, oh, oh my God, this would be so oh, great? I, I, I suffered the most extreme form of interview envy, yeah. I mean, <laughs> what, what, what journalist or interviewer would not want to interview Donald Trump? And frankly, what journalist would not put Donald Trump almost certainly a, a number one on any list of, of powerful people around the world that you would want to have? Uh, for a one-on-one interview. It's an extraordinary opportunity because not just he's the most powerful man on earth, but also the particular qualities he brings to the table in an interview are so extraordinary. You know, Jonathan Swan, I don't know Jonathan, but Jonathan Swan did a pretty good job of giving you a great view into Donald Trump's brain. And, And that's really what interviewing is partly about. You know what's amazing is that is that I mean Swan is not a TV journalist. Um, he's a print journalist. So um, well, maybe, there's many interesting things about the whole exchange. I mean, Jonathan Swan isn't a, a well-known TV journalist. Jonathan Swan isn't even American. And, yeah, and, <laughs> you know, yeah. having an Aust- a young Australian uh, sitting in the White House with the President of the United States and just telling the president of the United States in a very calm and respectful way that he's wrong and that, you know, he's mischaracterizing several things and trying to explain to the president of the United States exactly why that, that, you know, it's, it's an extraordinary encounter. Do you, what is your level of optimism that these problems that we've been talking about in terms of the U S press and the way it approaches these opportunities is going to change? Well, I, I, you know, I fear it, it's not going to change quickly. Uh, what, what it's partly about is the, is the deep and increasing polarization that we see in American society and culture. Uh, but we see, you know, far beyond America's shores as well. Um, so there's much less common ground and consensual sort of acceptance of, those strange little things called facts, for example. And there's also, uh, you know, a sense of tribalism and a, a, a presumption of whose side you are on that has infected coverage, uh, news and current affairs coverage of politics. And we see it in, in an extreme and troubling form in the United States. But, you know, I, I, I see it in, in the United Kingdom. We saw it over the Brexit debate and our referendum. Yeah. Uh, we see yeah. it in our, in our politics too. And, you know, you, you can travel into many different parts of the world and see similar issues coming down the track. And, and in the end, it raises questions about how journalists maintain the notion that there is something called impartiality, that, that facts can be beyond dispute and that, you know, independent, impartial, objective journalism is a thing. Because in the United States right now, there are many people who don't appear to believe in that. Well, and I think the press corps itself is split. I think that's right. Um, And we would love, you know, as a journalist of too many years standing, you'd love to believe that, that, you know, we journalists all share some common 
values and assumptions about the importance of, you know, uh, gathering evidence of the integrity of our research, um, of trying as best we can to get to the, the, the best, albeit messiest version of the truth that we can find uh, and, and then disseminate. But, you know, even as I'm saying these sort of <laughs> worthy things, I, I, I know that my version of all of that is clearly very different from some other journalists' notion of the very same thing. So something is happening that is dividing journalists and, and suggesting that journalists and journalism doesn't necessarily have a common culture anymore. Do you feel outmoded? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really interesting question. Uh, no, I, I, I re- remain defiant. I, I think I, you know, I, I uh, have spent the best part of three decades inside an organization that continues to believe in the notion of impartiality. Um, not, not the same thing as just telling both sides of any story. That, that's a different thing. And it is important to give voice to different sides of a story. But in the end, we journalists have a responsibility to find stuff out and to tell our audience what we have found out, you know, in, in the most truthful way possible, uh, without fear or favor. That, that's what the BBC taught me to do many years ago. And it's what I still try to do. And it's what I still think is fundamentally important to the role of the journalist. So um, I'm aware that there is much more noise around uh, the kind of journalism I do, but I still believe what I do is important. And I have every reason to believe, because my show, Hard Talk, interviews people in power from all over the world and is broadcast to audiences all over the world. I just know, you know, it isn't, it isn't just a feeling. I know from the enormous amounts of feedback I get that people in different parts of the world still appreciate, value, and care about the kind of journalistic values that the BBC still lives by. Stephen Sackers, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. So you can read all of CGR's coverage of Trump and this election at CGR.org. You can read our daily email newsletter at The Media Today. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening.